Banking has been a part of the economy for 600 years, and banking is always evolving. The most recent evolution, the financial industry has been going digital. Newer fintech companies have created innovative ways of doing everything related to money, from friendly peer-to-peer payments to budgeting, from business transactions to insurance. However, the traditional banks themselves have been relatively slow at adjusting to these digital changes, creating the opportunity for native digital banks, often referred to as challenger banks. N26 is a digital-first bank established in Berlin, and it's active in 17 European countries with a million users. Pat Kwa is the CTO at N26. Digital banks are hosted on the cloud, without a physical branch that the user must go to to perform an operation. The user accesses their account through a mobile application and can complete everything online, from opening an account to performing transactions. And the system has numerous advantages. Simplicity for the user, higher scalability in terms of users from the bank's perspective, and several other advantages that we'll discuss. We talk about the advantages of digital banks in this episode, and we also talk about the fintech industry more broadly. And of course, N26 as a financial company and a technology company itself. We also explore product development and how Pat manages his time as a CTO. And this is a useful discussion for anyone who's learning to be a technical leader or a manager. I certainly found it useful, and Pat is great at explaining how he balances his time between teams such as product and design and engineering. Pat Kwa, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thanks for having me. You are the CTO at N26, which is a bank, and I'm looking forward to discussing your perspective on how modern banks work, how a new bank works. I think we all have traditional experience with the interface of banking software, and people who have used banks other than newer banks like N26, they probably have some fairly low expectations for the software that they interact with. And if I think about the technology that has evolved in terms of the intersection of banking and software, I think about depositing a check from my phone. That's about as novel as an experience as we've we've gotten, despite all this innovation in software and other areas of the world. Why has the banking experience lagged behind other technological updates like movie watching for Netflix or the taxi experience with Uber. Yeah, I think it's a really great observation that you have there in that banking historically around the world has been very sort of underinvested in terms of technology. I think part of that there are probably two constraints why we don't see things that we see with Netflix or say Uber in banking and I think One of them is definitely something about regulation. So I think you probably see some of this as well in other heavily regulated industries where people see regulations as a big barrier to entry. And I think this is one of the perceptions that I think maybe we'll get to a little bit later about actually, I don't think it is actually a big barrier to entry if you really understand what it is that you need to do and what controls or risks that you're trying to mitigate and you have sensible practices in there. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, we have gone 26 at sort of trying to tackle this because we're also trying to take these regulations and look at them in a more modern way and instead of be fearful of them and see them as what is typically seen as excess overhead in terms of paperwork or administration, we're trying to look at ways of how do we build that into common everyday technical practices that are very common in other parts of the industry. I think one of the other sides to kind of the banking stuff is kind of, well, I mean, regulations keep the entry to market very high. And I think this means that existing banks haven't really had a reason to innovate and they haven't had a competition to sort of stimulate them. So I think, you know, banks have been around for quite a while or a lot of banks have been around for quite a while. And it's also a kind of consequence of uh, legacy and that a lot of banks are sort of maybe run by mainframe um, sort of systems built up in maybe the 70s or the 80s. And, you know, so are all the processes and layers of people in terms of how they actually build software or how they run their, their processes. And it's very hard to maybe shift all of the organization towards more modern practices, uh, which is what the benefits of, 
newer companies like Netflix or Uber have, and what I feel that we also have because we get to challenge everything from the ground up. So one of our values in our company is this idea about simplicity. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that you've probably had a very similar experience signing up for your own bank when you sign up for an account. There's a very, very heavy document, terms and conditions that you sort of leaf through. And we really try to apply this idea of simplicity in all aspects. So even in our sort of sign-up experience, so people can go from nothing to being a customer in eight minutes on their mobile phone. Our terms and conditions, even our lawyers have really gone into looking at how do we clarify normally a very, very complex terms and conditions set and really try to simplify it down into a very uh, easy to use, understandable experience Experience, particularly in the day and age of being mobile. So I think, you know, there are a couple of the big factors which I think make a big difference as to why I think traditional banks haven't really innovated. And this is where we're trying to make a bit of a difference. The business opportunity of a bank, even at just the core level of what how a bank makes money is is quite tremendous. So the I think the typical way that a bank makes money is you have people who deposit their money in the bank as a safe place to keep it and use it as a, a way to transact with other people and way to interface with their credit card system. And then the bank can loan out that money and can make some money loaning it out. It's a, it's a very good business. It's, banks have, have made good money doing that throughout the years. But from a technology perspective, there's a whole lot of other opportunities that you can build on top of that system. Once you have a lot of transactions flowing through a technology stack, there's lots of opportunities for leverage and expansion. And I think these other kinds of, of businesses are are more often categorized in the fintech space of categorization. Do you see a delineation between banks, like new banks, like N26 and fintech companies? Not necessarily. I think I've, I struggle a little bit with the idea of fintech as a whole because it's so broad. So I think it's quite interesting because I've met quite a lot of other people from sort of fintech companies and anything that has to do with sort of money or anything that's maybe technology that's related to money ends up being classified as fintech. So, you know, everything from looking at insurance, everything from managing stocks, everything from even sort of budgeting, personal budgeting uh, gets classified as fintech. And then you have the banking sector around, you know, where you manage your own money and what you do with that money. And then you have other sort of fintech companies sort of specializing in sort of payments uh, or payment methodologies. So you have a lot of uh, companies trying to offer more intuitive ways of making transactions. So QR codes or other sort of payment things like Square. And I think because fin finance or money ends up being kind of being quite broad and applicable in lots of different areas, I, I think the fintech space is actually really, really broad. So I actually think the delineation is very difficult between, say, fintech and a bank like N26 because it does start to blur a little bit. So, you know, there are companies where maybe a traditional payment company that's starting to move into uh, providing international exchange accounts. Are they now a bank or are they originally sort of a payment sort of uh, company? I think it's getting blurrier and blurrier. And I think maybe going back to your sort of first uh, question around uh, why banks don't really innovate is that, you know, now I think everyone has to innovate because there is so much of this blurring between uh, sort of boundaries of what does it mean to actually deal with money and, and transact that in a more digital era. And from the business point of view, is N26 focused on building services and infrastructure just around that core classical banking business of serving customers that are storing their money there and transacting with their with that money and then you know is N26 just doing the the classic sort of you know make money off of the the float of that that storage of money or are you already thinking about expanding into more of the fintech services yeah, definitely. So I think there's a couple of different interesting things to uh, how we look at monetization. So I think one of the interesting things is we have a much lower cost base than a lot of traditional banks. So we don't have physical outlets like a normal branch. And this means that we can actually scale up our organization much, much more effectively. So when we onboard a new customer, we use the same banking platform that we've built to add them on without having to establish a new branch and then sort of manage uh, more people from that perspective. So I think 
the fact that we're a purely digital first kind of bank actually allows us to scale our cost basis a lot greater. I think also the fact that we've built more modern banking sort of platform means that, you know, we're not uh, tied to legacy mainframe systems or legacy systems, which means that once again, the overall cost to making change is a lot lower because we can actually uh, innovate a lot more. And what that means is that we can actually pass those savings on to our customers much more effectively. So in Europe, it's very common to pay for a normal standard sort of savings or your base sort of cash account. And because of our very low cost uh, basis, we can actually offer that uh, sort of for free and we can start offering those services. And what we really want to focus on is very much this idea of similar to more modern companies as well, is that we want to provide services that people are really willing to pay for. So uh, as an example, one of our more premium products is our sort of black card. And uh, with that black card, uh, you get sort of free travel insurance and you get better sort of international rates of sort of you get the exchange sort of rate when traveling, as well as all the normal sort of basic account things that are made on offer through our normal sort of savings account. So what we are really trying to focus on is really provide differing sort of value added products that then people are then willing to sort of pay for. So of course, like a normal bank, there are also sort of loan type products of which you make some money of. Um, but what we're really focused on is really providing an excellent customer experience in a simple way. And then we hope that customers value that enough that they actually want to uh, pay for the extra value add products on top of that. I think what's surprised me about this kind of digital product is being a sort of more digital native person myself, you know, we still are amazed at the number of people that also want something physical. So we actually launched the first metal card that's contactless here in Europe. And that's our sort of premium flagship uh, sort of product. And it is quite amazing because, you know, I think people like it not only just because of the, the packaging of services that we offer with that, but also because it's a hardware thing, which is something that I find really interesting in today's age of being very, very digital. I wanted to start with this high-level discussion of the business because I think that informs the structure of the engineering organization as well as some of the decisions in the in the engineering culture. Can you give me a high-level view of the engineering stack at N26? Yeah, so um, we're a little bit unusual for our European bank because we're actually in the cloud. And, you know, I think that has pros and cons in that we're definitely probably observed a lot closer by our, our regulators and auditors because it's a bit of an unknown quantity. At the same time, it gives us a lot more flexibility as all those people who've migrated to the cloud understand the benefits of more sort of flexible infrastructure without having to manage the actual physical uh, nature of that. So I think understanding that we're in the cloud is actually a big thing that allows us to maybe use different approaches to how we actually build. So we're mostly JVM uh, sort of uh, stack. Um, so we've uh, been mostly based on Java. We're actually moving towards Kotlin. We did some exploration uh, last year around migrating to this that we think will actually help us move towards more flexible and sort of productive kind of uh, teams. And we're sort of a, a mix of, we have a couple of smaller monoliths maybe for uh, people's sort of tech stack, but we've also got a collection of microservices. So a lot of our microservices leverage things like Spring Boot, and we build them using sort of Maven and Jenkins. So these are very typical sort of tools that I think everyone uh, is expected to, to have. We have infrastructure as code as well. So because we're in the cloud and we want repeatability and uh, reliability, we manage our servers like cattles and not pets. And so we, we use a lot of infrastructure as code to make sure that we can replicate all of our, our different sort of areas. So we have big fans of HashiCorp. So we use uh, Nomad for and SaltStack to provision and run infrastructure. We use Console for service discovery configuration management and Vault uh, for managing secrets. Now, like all sorts of errors of today's deployments and microservices, we are also a big fan of, of Docker and we use that for our deployments. So we have a couple of internal applications that are actually built on sort of JavaScript environments. So these are more of our summer internal tooling. They also get packaged up in terms of our docking containers and deployed. And then we use a lot of sort of centralized sort of logging through Elk. And there are a lot of the sort of tools that we use for building the services and the sort of banking platform that we have. What I'm really excited by about the team that we've built is that we have a really strong DevSecOps culture embedded into the team. And so the idea of like continuous delivery 
is pretty much a given of the way that we actually work. And I think that's a really interesting thing in a bank because having consulted for banks in the UK, a lot of people have this perception that things move slowly in a bank. So, you know, people are lucky if they can deploy once every three months, maybe once every six months into a normal bank because of all the sort of controls. And I think one of the things that we were very careful to sort of put in very early on was this rigorous uh, repeatable process that's automated and strictly controlled. And this actually allows us to do a lot of different sort of changes to our sort of environment really rapidly. So uh, as an example, I think last week we did over 900 builds of various different services and we hit uh, 177 uh, live deployments into production. And so it kind of gives you a shape of the pace of how quickly we move our services. And I think it's a really exciting tech stack to actually work on and to be able to evolve the sort of product from that side. The point you led with that the cloud provider, you can maintain compliance despite using a cloud provider. If I understand correctly, that's kind of a new thing. And I think some of the cloud providers have been working steadily to get compliant, you know, HIPAA compliance, whatever other flavors of compliance you need to, to have a bank. Was that one of the barriers perhaps to, you know, when we, when we try to think about you know, why wasn't a bank started earlier? Why did we get these these companies, you know, in, in the sort of Web 2.0 phase, you know, we got the, the Ubers and the Airbnbs, it seems like a little bit earlier than we started to get the digital banks. Was it about this compliance layer in the cloud? I can imagine it would be. Uh, so, you know, I think actually a lot of the major cloud providers all have all types of compliance certification. So, you know, I think this is one of the things where if you talk about, you know, our AWS or Google Cloud or Azure PCI compliant, they pretty much all are, you know, asking for an ISO 27001 certificate. I'm pretty sure most of the cloud vendors would probably have all of those standard ones as well. I'm not so familiar with HIPAA. I think it's an American standard for yeah. health, but I'm not so sure. That's right. But, you know, I think the cloud vendors probably early on also realized actually for them to give safety to other regulators, they also needed to be able to guarantee and demonstrate all of these things and controls to a regulator. So maybe there was a natural thing of when they first started, um, it was more unregulated kind of places where they did that and realized actually, you know, the things, the good practices that you have to do at scale, you have to have strong, repeatable processes, right? So, and all the things about regulation and controls are about making sure that you have these documented and repeatable processes that are very sensible. And I think, you know, the only way you can scale is actually by having very good sort of processing controls. And that's all that sort of a lot of regulators ask. And then it's just about making sure that you understand which controls are mapping to which risk factors that they're trying to mitigate according to which standards and in which ways. So, yeah, I think, I guess the short answer is, yeah, I think a lot of the um, maybe more regulated industries didn't go onto the cloud because uh, those providers didn't have certificates to demonstrate all of these uh, meeting the standards. But I think that's a very different story today because, I mean, cloud technology has been around for a long time now. And, you know, I think the practices of managing the internals to that are very mature now. And, you know, they've passed through all of that and that big providers can provide a lot of these documentations for the things that you need to demonstrate to regulators and, and auditors. You're a CTO. Uh, you are the CTO at N26. And you've already described a, a sequence of products that are being worked on. There's multiple products. You've also defined a, a well-crafted engineering culture where you can release frequently. It sounds like you've got a platform, kind of a consistent platform across the company, or you're making your way towards having a consistent platform across the company so that deploying services in one area of the company isn't uh, remarkably different than in another area of the company. A CTO could work on many different things within a company in a given day. You could work on this platform layer. You could work on figuring out what blockers any of these individual products have, whether we're talking about the, the metallic credit card, the uh, contactless credit card, or the loan services, or anything. You could be working on hiring. How do you structure the, the time allocation of the CTO role? Like, what, what are your, uh, your personal KPIs, and how do you determine what to focus on in a given day? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And I think maybe to answer it properly, it probably makes sense to explain a little bit more of the context of how our organization is sort of set up. So we have a CEO who's one of the founders and he helps drive the sort of direction of where we go as a company strategically. And that naturally aligns to sort of product and, and market launch type of initiatives. We also have a, a chief product officer and both the chief product officer and myself report into the CTO, uh, the CEO. And, you know, we kind of work very closely together. So, you know, we're not a very old company by banking standards, but one of the things that I was very conscious of doing when I came into the role was avoiding what a lot of other companies have, which is a very clear, or not a very clear, but a, a very wide gap between product thinking and technical thinking. So uh, when I came in, the teams that we have are actually sort of cross-functional in nature of how they work. So we've really gone down the path of trying to have product or domain driven teams and organization. And then we have these kind of cross-functional skills to optimize for flow so that we can make sure that we get fast feedback loops between products and user experience and what's technically difficult or what's easy to operate. And we can optimize around that. So the CPO and myself work really closely at making sure that we can deliver the product roadmap about where we want to go. And so we work very closely on both product ideas, but also then implementing and making those things happen in reality. So as I said, we're not a very old company. So we've been around now for about three years at the bank. And, you know, we are still a sort of startup. So like everything, we're growing quite rapidly. So I joined in September last year. We had 450,000 users. Uh, we're now a million users in Europe looking to expand uh, into the UK and into the US at some point in the future. And, you know, there's lots of things that we would like to do, not only iterating over existing products, but also new product initiatives. So, for example, we recently, and maybe this isn't a surprise for people in the US, but in, in Germany, uh, we haven't been able to release Google Pay because it's one of those constraints where Google Pay as a system wasn't enabled yet. But we were the first bank in Europe to go live with them because it was one of those features we know that a lot of of our users wanted to actually have. So a lot of my time is actually spent uh, obviously hiring, but one of the things that I really want to make sure is that we just don't hire for the sake of hiring, but we understand how teams are most effectively going to work. And it's quite different depending on which scale of an organization that you're at. So when I first came into the role late last year, it was looking at where were we now and what are the things that we wanted to do from our product roadmap and what are the shape of our organizations that we actually want to have as we go forward. As you can imagine, having a 30-person development team is quite different from saying having a 150-person development team. And you need to start to work out how you split down things into maximizing autonomy, but also uh, making sure that you still have good alignment. So I always say everyone can have complete autonomy, but then uh, it gets like a bit messy when somebody's autonomy steps onto somebody else's autonomy. And this is where it's quite important where I've been looking at the structures of the organization of how we work and I've been sort of bringing in new capabilities. So part of that is naturally a process of hiring and interviewing and sort of attracting people. Another side of my role is really looking at sort of the technical landscape and sort of trying to understand where we're going and try to make sure that everyone on the team understands where we go. So what you were talking about, a sort of consistent banking platform is one of those things where we want to sort of make it as user-friendly as possible to engineers and to teams. So they want to continue basically building on top of it not something that they are sort of forced to do because they're told to do, but because they see the value in actually doing that and they can focus on building the product on top of that. So a lot of that is sort of looking at the sort of overall architecture, looking at um, sort of feedback loops and sort of supporting different projects at different points on where they are. So sometimes my days do not look very regular. Sometimes it's a bit of a deep dive into a particular project um, or a product. Sometimes it's really about sort of working across uh, sort of the roles that I've brought in and uh, making sure that everyone has a clear enough context about what they're doing. And also trying to work out how do we unblock some of the things in the environment environment that are preventing people from doing the best things that they can. I think one of the things that I'm particularly passionate about, and I've written a book around this, is called Talking with Tech Leads, is really about building sort of technical leadership skills in engineers as they grow up. So anybody who's been on sort of a tech lead track, sometimes called a lead developer, 
in some organizations, you might call them sort of an architect. You know, they'll start to realize actually to be successful, it's quite different, the skills and capabilities that you need from being a successful engineer. So, you know, resolving conflicts between engineers, trying to understand what are the system quality attributes you're trying to build in and design and, and make explicit the trade-offs around that. And that's also one of the things that I spend a lot of time in my organization doing. And we've actually kicked off uh, sort of a tech lead development program for sort of what I say is the next generation of people who are on that cusp where, you know, they're really great sort of engineers that can sort of build small services. But then as we build a sort of team around them, we need to support them in that transition rather than what a lot of other companies do and sort of throw them into the deep end and say, good luck, have fun leading people without setting expectations around what it is and also giving people the tools around that. On other days, it's really sort of working with the product side and working with the bank as well. So uh, trying to make sure that we get the right, I guess, documentation in place that we need to demonstrate to auditors. And yeah, it's it's quite a blur sometimes, but it's an exciting uh, growth stage. And it's an exciting time to join a company uh, that's growing so rapidly. I want to dive deeper into this idea of the tech lead and, and how that is manifesting at N26 for you. So what I heard you describe was a situation where you are frequently interacting with the CEO and this, I think, CPO, you said? Is that Chief Product yep. Officer? Chief Product Officer, yeah. Right. So you and the CPO and the CEO can sit around a table and talk about what are the products that we're trying to build, what are the challenges we're trying to overcome, and then you can use that information and that integration with the product officer and the and the executive officer and use it to craft how you're spending your time and the energy that you're putting into different parts of the company and perhaps the KPIs or the OKRs that you are determining for different areas of the company and different products within the company. And that way the the information can can trickle down and can empower people to understand how they are affecting the overall moving of the ball forward for for the entire company. And what else I hear there is that you have the ability to move between the product thinking, the business thinking, and the engineering thinking. And that sounds like a flavor of the tech leadership. It's it's almost like a, you know, it's like with the, with the whole, like a DevOps thing. I think the idea of DevOps is like, let's break down the silos between development and operations. But if you take that a step further, you actually need to break down silos between development and operations and accounting and design and platform engineering. And basically... Different organizations, different members of the organization need to be comfortable interacting with each other. I mean, you don't need to be an expert in everything, but you need to have some familiarity and ability to interface with the rest of the company. Is that how you see tech leadership? Is it kind of like the erosion of this highly defined, bounded context for what an engineer within the organization is doing? Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I think what you talked about there of this blurring of sort of boundaries is exactly sort of the culture that we've sort of cultivated. So we have sort of cross-functional teams. We have sort of a core team that's kind of our infrastructure and they have security and they work with security champions and teams. And the idea is really about that sort of spreading of knowledge and holistic ownership. So you know, one of the key messages that I often sort of repeat is this idea that, you know, anyone can be a technical leader. As you say, it's like one of those things about how do you blur the boundaries of you saying that your role is not just about the code and the software, but actually understanding how does that software solve a person's problem from a user experience perspective? How does that, you know, meet some need from the business around either um, helping more customers come on board or, or how does that help uh, sort of the, the product direction? all the way to, you know, the back office and the operations side of the bank of, you know, how do we design something so that it's not going to be a problem for our sort of back office people or it'll be easier or we won't create sort of failure demand on the system. And then also the sort of technical operations side of it, of making sure that we have good alerting in place. And I think that's exactly the type of technical leadership of people sort of thinking beyond their own task and actually thinking more holistically in terms of the value chain. And I think what you kind of observed or heard from my description is I try to do that at a higher level, which is looking at sort of between departments or between sort of functional areas to really try to optimize the organization for sort of flow of value around different areas. Now, obviously, our company is too big for me to be able to lead specific architecture products. 
And I see my role as a leader explicitly about also developing people and growing people to make sure that they take care of that. So for me, that's a really key thing about good leaders is that they act as multipliers. So one of the big challenges, and I gave a talk actually at Lead Dev Austin earlier this year, uh, which is also on, I think, Vimeo or YouTube. I talk about moving this mindset away from being a maker to a multiplier. So this is a big shift of, you know, the things as an engineer, often you get rewarded and you get this personal satisfaction. Sometimes I miss that as an engineer of the, you know, you have this technical problem, you type some things into a computer and then you sort of get this green or red kind of state it works or it doesn't work. You know, at a higher level, at a sort of leadership level, anything you, you do to multiply the, the sort of output of a team or to multiply other people to be more effective is a successful leadership. And I think that's a really key message I really encourage everyone to sort of take on board in every one of their roles is really thinking about anything that you do to multiply the output of yourself or with other people is an act of technical leadership. And it's that mindset about how you reward yourself moving away from what you personally do to what have you enabled other people to do even broader than what they could have done before. And that's a big essential part to this sort of mindset shift to being a successful leader, at least in my opinion. Well, this is very important. This maker versus multiplier idea is very important in in modern software engineering, I think in part because the number of managed services and products that you can buy off the shelf that will solve your problem, it has just exploded. <laughs> and if your job as an engineer, in many cases, is actually to shop around. It's not like sit down and build the thing that needs to be implemented it's like shop around and find out who already has built this thing and like can you take it off the shelf and pay 9.99 a month for it as opposed to spending you know two quarters building out a service no absolutely and and i think that's a big shift which is a lot of engineers they see that and they see this personal satisfaction and you know are these systems sort of get rewarded as well as that a lot of places reward people for the the individual contribution and it's super important i think as people move into the idea of this leadership mindset it's just the behavior differences aren't the things that will make you successful in that sort of role so the platform itself, I'm curious how well-defined your platform is or if there are areas of the company where it's, it's more specialized or it's, it's different or it's less homogenous than you would, you would like it to be. How standardized is the process of service creation and service deployment and then service monitoring and logging, et cetera, uh, within N26? I would actually say it's quite standardized. I think it's really quite interesting when I came in because I think one of the interesting things I observed is that we have a hugely collaborative culture. So I think what's an interesting thing that I haven't seen in a lot of other organizations is people just make decisions for themselves and they go, that's exactly it. And I think you know, the collaborative culture that we have is one of those things where everyone's really focused on get stuff done. And this is kind of a mentality that we, we sort of talk about at N26 quite a lot. And, you know, I think one of the things that people realize is that, you know, there are certain decisions if we standardize, you know, we don't have these hypothetical arguments about which thing is actually, you know, 2% better than this other solution. It gets rid of a whole bunch of problems and we can focus on building products and customer value, which is exactly what drives a lot of our sort of engineers. And so actually the standard Standardization came through a lot of sort of, I guess, organic uh, agreement between a lot of the sort of technical leads and the technical team at the time, because, you know, who really wants to go and decide how they're going to do monitoring and then set it up and then do that? If it's easy to just plug in a couple of things that you know you want to be able to monitor and get alerting on, that's exactly how the teams kind of had that approach. So I think it's a very pragmatic attitude, I would say, to how we approach technology. Is the is this something helping us build something for our customers? If not, then maybe we should look at uh, standard solutions that allow us to get rid of a whole host of problems. And we don't need to spend time, as you said, <laughs> spending half a year building this ultimate solution, which will only get out of date. That doesn't really add a lot of value to our customers at the end of the day. Do you have a platform engineering team or is it just service teams? So, yeah, so we have a couple of funny names, I guess, in our sort of team. So we have a sort of cross-functional teams that own a sort of product area. So as an example, our payment space is quite complex. And so we have a couple of teams in that sort of group 
that are responsible for that because the service characteristics are so high on the back end that it makes sense to have sort of dedicated teams around that. We do have what we call a application platform team. And so they're much focused on sort of platform features that would be not unique to a particular product. So as an example, we have a thing that we refer to as certification. So one of the interesting things about mobile is that you can actually give an interesting user experience, uh, which is your push notification in order to confirm a particular action. So we use this, for instance, in our implementation of MasterCard 3D Secure. So for those of you who don't know MasterCard 3D Secure, it's often this extra fraud mechanism or fraud protection mechanism that merchants online can enable. And that when you use your MasterCard card and MasterCard thinks that there's a potentially fraudulent transaction, they pop up an extra dialogue. And the most common implementation, which I experienced a lot when I lived in the UK before joining N26, is this horrible, it feels like early 90s design screen. It asks you to create a password. If you have a password, you have to remember your fourth or eighth or twelfth character and put them in. Nobody ever remembers it. And as a result, a lot of people cancel their transaction and don't go through. So a lot of merchants don't do that. But for us, we basically send a notification to your phone saying, okay, we think there's a fraudulent transaction. Please confirm or certify that this is you. And we make the most of simplifying that experience just through the mobile experience and pushing a notification. So that is that sort of certifying uh, kind of feature is triggered through a couple of different mechanisms, which isn't sort of a product specific thing. And that belongs to our kind of platform team. So they own, I guess, what you would call generic application platform features. And then we actually have what we call a core team, which in other places might be called a platform team. And this is where we have a lot of the, the sort of, I guess, more of the infrastructure um, automation um, skills and capabilities working there to sort of help build out some of our infrastructure's code and server management so that people can operate at a different level. So they're kind of responsible for managing things like our continuous integration servers, continuous deployment uh, processes, and then they work with teams very closely to build out new, um, perhaps, deployment pipelines for new services or to speed up, basically, new service creation and to also iterate over our existing tools to make sure that everyone keeps up to date with our sort of moving infrastructure as we sort of grow. Do you have a lot of data science going on within N26? Yeah, so we actually have a, a fairly uh, good data group. So we have like a whole bunch of sort of data analysts. They help us build out um, a lot of the reporting that we have. So we have a lot of sort of product metrics to understand how our application gets used. It's like one of those really nice things that you can do if you actually think about it early on and you start to understand what is it that you'd like to measure in terms of product success. And then they also sit with sort of data engineers who are people who are helping build out some of the sort of data models and sort of put them into our sort of services. And then we do have a number of data scientists who help us work with different elements of our sort of application. So, for instance, one of our data science products is actually sort of machine learning algorithm that actually sits behind our implementation of MasterCard 3D Secure as well. So, what we've sort of built there is some intelligence that allows the model to understand patterns about you and your card and how it gets used to work out, you know, if your card is being constantly challenged in weird places, when to actually pop up this uh, MasterCard 3D Secure or when to say, actually, we think this is you and actually we won't even bother uh, triggering that process. So that's exactly one of the areas where we have uh, some of our data scientists at work. And have you felt a need to aggressively hire machine learning developers or more data scientists? How are you thinking about the development of your data teams? So I think proportionally wise, we actually have a pretty good number of sort of data scientists. So for our sort of group, we've got sort of three to four different data scientists. And what happens is they kind of end up sitting down and working closely with a product team. So if we have a product where we think there needs to be some sort of machine learning or some sort of data science kind of project, this sort of collaborative dynamic teaming is kind of a characteristic of how we kind of work. And so they'll sit down with the product team and then agree on exactly what is it that they'd like to maybe do, what maybe approach or training model would actually make sense, and then iterate actually over productionizing that with a different development team. So it works quite well. For us, it doesn't really make sense to have like data science everywhere, not yet. 
but it's really very focused on where we think the most practical use is. But we have very good sort of uh, collaboration that means that we know what people are made aware very early on as to whether or not this thing would be a good place to have some data scientists work a bit closer to help us improve the experience. Yeah, so that's exactly what, what I was thinking about is you've still got probably a lot of greenfield, just like feature development application, basic applic- core application development product iteration to go before the machine learning side of things can really be be higher leverage than that because the machine learning side of things is more of like an optimization over products that have already been proven and developed significant data sets. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, we have a very large user base of more than a million people and we've processed more than a, a sort of billion euros per month. And so there's actually quite a lot of data in there. So, I mean, we do use it in some simple examples. So, for example, when you make a transaction, a sort of transaction list, when it appears, we have some classifiers that try to classify and give a hashtag as to what it is. This ends up being used in terms of statistics that we demonstrate as to your monthly spend. And for instance, one of the interesting things that we've used data science for is that often what happens with, say, if you make a transaction or a payment somewhere and then it gets refunded, that refund naturally appears maybe two, three, depends on the merchant, a few days later. And we also try to uh, connect these different transactions in the application. And so there's some interesting intelligence there about saying, you know, about the, the sort of merchant, the, the amount, and connecting them so that in the application, when you open up your transaction list, you can say, oh, yeah, like, you know, why did I pay that? Oh, no, that got refunded. And those two things are actually connected rather than a sort of boring transaction list where you see it much, much further, and then you have to like, make that connection yourself. So we actually have where we have large data models, where it makes sense. Once again, it goes back to our sort of philosophy of a simple user experience and really trying to understand how do we use that, where it makes sense given the data that we have to make it a really good user experience. Yeah, that's uh, labeling of the transactions going through a system. That seems like a an unsolved problem. There is not yet an API that you can call on a user transaction to get it canonically classified. And the reason I know this is because I use, not to knock on QuickBooks, but I use QuickBooks and it, it does not classify things correctly. I'm like looking at, <laughs> I'm like looking at it. It's like, you know, X dollars spent on hospitality and like drill into hospitality and it's like Amazon Web Services. <laughs> like, ah, don't really call that hospitality, but yeah, I don't know. It'll be, it'll be nice when that is a solved problem. Yeah, and I think it's maybe it's not so known from a lot of uh, sort of users, but with our transactions, you can actually sort of reclassify and retag them. And we also have machine learning there. So if it learns for you personally that this thing isn't actually sort of a maybe food expense, but this thing is actually like a, a household expense, then it'll reclassify it for you. So there's also not just general learning at the sort of uh, application level, but also at the user level, once again, focused on the whole idea of trying to make the user experience as good as possible. So as far as the payment system, the modern payment system, as I have interfaced with it, it's typically, it moves pretty slow. And I'm not sure how much of this is because of transactions need to be somewhat reversible or because accounts could potentially be hijacked. Is the slow speed of payments that move through the banking system, is that a feature or a bug? I think it's a bug, to be honest. So, you know, I think the payments, it's, it's actually quite interesting because I think a lot of this is actually probably driven by banks and the, the sort of history and the legacy. So if anyone uh, is listening, has worked for a bank, you probably all know about batches and batches are the way that banks work. Well, typical banks kind of work. So for us, it's actually kind of interesting because we're actually a real-time bank. So we move money pretty much instantaneously. But if you imagine back in the sort of 80s and 90s is that, you know, people would shut down their branches, they would like do the calculations and then there would be this sort of overnight sort of quick we need to do our books and then sort of then ship it off and I think historically that's just a legacy problem of how the banking industry worked we know this in the US where we're sort of exploring that it's still this pretty much like batch based system in the UK it's a little bit different because they actually have two say payment schemes one which is called BACS and the other one which is called FPS so faster payment scheme and actually it was an initiative because of this problem from a user experience and I'm not sure when it came in but it's been around for a while is that banks had to, so it was an industry regulation change, and that banks had to adhere to the faster payment scheme 
to offer instantaneous transfers. So I think it was exactly the same sort of experience for, for you. In the UK, yeah, it would take three days for Magic to magically move from one number account to number, another number account because of legacy reasons. And in the UK, at least, they solve that through FPS to avoid this kind of batching. So it's one of those things where, once again, we, we benefited from really thinking about how do we make sure we avoid batching and we really do real-time per transaction because that's exactly the experience that customers expect and that's the experience we want to provide them. What's the most surprising thing that you've learned about banking technology? I think the thing that surprised me about banking technology is I think people are a lot more scared about compliance and regulation than they should be. So I think it's quite interesting because our head of uh, sort of systems engineering, he's helped us sort of roll out infrastructure as code in this kind of sort of process. And I think what I've learned is that, you know, anytime that you go through an audit is that these things that I consider are sort of like a QA for your entire organization around processes. And so just like how QAs in in sort of software development have moved away from being sort of the end of the line, and we really try to think about pushing quality all the way at the front, quality uh, sort of assurance today is very much about sort of, you know, exploratory testing, finding the edge cases and finding where your weaknesses are. And I think that's exactly one thing where, you know, we don't want to ever be afraid of what our auditors have to say, because we should already be uh, knowing that actually we meet all of these things and we have all of these sort of processes in place. And so I think that's the thing is that I think most people, when they expect to work for a, a digital bank, they think, oh, no, this thing's going to be really heavyweight and, you know, get in the way. But one of the things that I work very closely with with the rest of the organization is really thinking about how do we make sure we keep modern approaches, agile software development, continuous delivery, infrastructure as code, all these sort of site reliability engineering practices alive, because all of these are actually controls that help us with uh, meeting uh, compliance and regulation. And people just have to be brave enough to talk about, okay, what you ask for, here's how we do it in today's world. And actually, this is repeatable and, and automated as well. And we shouldn't be afraid of what compliance and regulators have, and they shouldn't also necessarily slow us down. It's just we have to sort of bridge that understanding between what they want to mitigate risk, and when we have different ways of mitigating risk today that don't necessarily involve meetings and sign-off and checklists and documentation. So a lot of people listen to this show because they like to get ideas about technology that they could potentially build. I think there's a lot of people that listen that are potentially thinking about maybe starting a company at some point in the future. And I've been doing a lot of shows about fintech recently. And one thing I find interesting about fintech is in contrast to an area like the sharing economy. So you look at the sharing economy, Uber came out and then a bunch of people were like, okay, I'm going to build Uber for X, whether it's Uber for dog care or Uber for dishwashing or something like that. And there really weren't a whole lot of, of Uber for X opportunities that were actually successful big opportunities. There were a bunch of them, but you know, probably not as many as, as people initially thought. But with fintech, when I look at fintech as a sector, it seems like if you're an entrepreneur, if you are just kind of looking for a space to get into and where you can just study it and then eventually find an opportunity... Fintech seems pretty ripe that there's just like an abundance of opportunity. Am I mistaken there or is there really just like a complete abundance of opportunities? And if you just start looking into the industry, you see tons of opportunities. I'm pretty sure that there is. I mean, I think, as you said, it's like one of those things where it may be traditional finance environments. There hasn't been a lot of innovation, particularly thinking about how do you apply modern approaches or modern things to innovation. As an example, I have an ex-colleague of mine who started up a fintech insurance company in London called Risk. And this is really about, you know, uh, if you think about insurance, that's also really a sort of industry which there hasn't been a lot of innovation. And I think that's, you know, like in each of these different uh, areas, uh, I think there's definitely sort of time to understand what it means to sort of innovate around that. And I think there's definitely going to be lots of opportunities for people. And yeah, it's it's an exciting time to sort of be in fintech in general. And I know that from sort of a funding perspective, there's lots of sort of money because I think investors are also, you know, they're, they're seeing that there's a lot more attention and there's going to be some really good ideas about some extra value that can be unlocked because it's never been approached in this way using sort of modern interfaces or modern technology. This is your first CTO job, as far as I know. What has been the biggest challenge of being a CTO? 
Yeah, I've been working in the industry for about 16 years. 14 of those years, I was a consultant at ThoughtWorks. And I think probably one of the biggest challenges was moving away from consulting. So I think there are sort of pros and cons to consulting. You know, one of the interesting things about it is that you get to see lots of different industries over a sort of fairly short amount of time compared to other people in, in sort of careers. So I think one of the things that I found challenging is kind of missing a little bit about, you know, seeing and hearing what other people are doing in different industries. And I think that's that's actually where a lot of innovation comes from is you can seed different ideas from one place into another and there's a lot of value in that in sort of consulting. On the flip side, you know, I think for me, I also get to sort of see a lot and I get a lot of reward from seeing some of the things that I start actually pay off as well. And I think that's the really rewarding side to moving away from a consulting role into a more permanent position and into a management position is that, you know, I don't necessarily need to convince anyone or to influence anyone into think these ideas are good. I need to get my team on board, but once they're on board and if they're completely on board, then we just make it happen. And so we can actually move really rapidly because we have people who want to move in that direction as well. So in terms of the sort of challenging, I think it's a, a little bit of a different experience of being in a single place for a lot longer and also trying not to maybe intermingle this difference between sort of your role where you have authority and your opinions. And I think this is something that you know, as a consultant, really rely heavily on your influencing to try to get people on board with your sort of ideas. And in my sort of management role, you know, I'm at the top of the food chain from a sort of uh, technology perspective. I have to be really careful about maybe saying things that I would have said as my opinion. And I don't want people to simply say yes, because it's my role uh, in the company, but I want them to say yes, because they think it's a good idea. And so there's a natural tension where I'm, I'm maybe a little bit more held back in my ideas, where I try to ask for everyone else's opinions before I present mine to make sure that, you know, just the fact that I'm a CTO doesn't influence and sort of close out opinions or valuable ideas that would actually be really useful. And I think that's a really interesting balance to, to sort of find. Yeah, well, I mean, I can relate to the appeal of the consultant because I think that's you know, somewhat similar to, to how I operate and you know, just kind of like interviewing people from different companies and, you know, never going deeper than an hour's worth of, uh, of surveying of the technology, which is fun, but it's also what am I really developing a deep understanding of. I mean, podcasting, that's for sure. You know, software in general, maybe. But I think probably similar to what you're discovering at, at N26 is there there is a depth of understanding a certain domain and how software works in that domain that probably is very fulfilling. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a real key thing, which is, once again, being able to learn the domain and to apply my sort of experiences from before, and then combining that and also being there to sort of see those ideas actually materialize. So I think one of the things that you learn in any sort of leadership role is that you kind of like initiate things and it takes a while for those things to happen. And as a consultant, you're not normally around to see all of them come out. Some of them don't pay out and some of them do. And, you know, I've been in my role already long enough to actually see a lot of these sorts of things for, come to fruition. And I have to say, it's really, really fulfilling as well. Pat Kwa, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you as well. Wow.